Ephesians 6.17a is the text for this morning. The title of the message is Spiritual Warfare, Helmet of Salvation. If you've been with us for any length of time now, you know that we have been systematically working our way through Paul's letter to the church at Ephesus. And we've crested the mountain now. We're on the backside of Paul's thoughts here. He's bringing all of his thoughts to a conclusion. But on his mind now, on Paul's mind, and still under the umbrella thought of of walk worthy of the calling to which you've been called, what he told us two chapters back in Ephesians 4, verse 1, walk worthy of the calling to which you've been called. So still under that banner, still under that umbrella, come Paul's thoughts of spiritual warfare. There is a cosmic battle that is going on all around us. Paul said this, he said, For we do not wrestle, that's hand-to-hand combat, by the way, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers and the authorities, the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. And then Paul told us this, he said, Brothers, sisters, in light of that cosmic war, take up the full armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand firm. And then what Paul began to do is he began to systematically enumerate each piece of the Christian's armor. It's really God's armor, each piece of God's armor given to the Christian that we might live the victorious Christian life. We've studied the belt of truth. we studied the breastplate of righteousness, the gospel shoes of peace, the shield of faith. This morning, we come to the very last piece of defensive armor that is given to the Christian by God, that of the helmet of salvation. Let me remind you, like I often have, friends, we're engaged in a very real battle, say battle, with a very real enemy, say enemy, with very real and lasting consequences, say consequences. Don't forget that. Don't forget that. Let's turn our attention to our text for this morning. Our study will confine us to verse 17a, but we'll read the text in its entirety as we have so that we get the entire context of the text. So let me encourage you to stand with us if you have the ability this morning in reverence for God's Word. Paul writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit in Ephesians chapter 6, we're going to look at verses 16 through 20. He pens the following words. Stand therefore. Having fastened on the belt of truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness which is given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith, with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one, and take the helmet of salvation, and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit, with all prayer and supplication, To that end, with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints and also for me, that words may be given to me and opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. You may be seated. Take up the helmet of salvation. Six little words. You may be thinking to yourself, how in the world is he going to preach for 30 minutes on six little words? Let me assure you, I'm not. It will probably be somewhere around 45 minutes. 
There's one who appreciates it. Let's talk for a moment about the, the helmet of the soldier. Remember, Paul is probably tethered to, in some way uh, or form, to a Roman soldier. Paul was on house arrest when he wrote this letter. What Paul is doing is he's making observations as, uh, as to what he sees arrayed on this Roman soldier, and he's using them as metaphors for the Christian life. When a Roman soldier readied himself for battle, the helmet was the last piece of defensive armor that was put on. It was the final act of readiness and preparedness for combat. The helmets in Paul's day, they they weren't anything like the helmets that our soldiers use in today's modern warfare. There's no heads-up displays in these helmets. There's no two-way communication in these helmets. They were pretty rugged in style, but they served an immense purpose. Their function was critical oftentimes made of a leather lining under a hammered metal exterior that covered the cheeks and the brow and covered the back of the neck. They were oftentimes very hot, very heavy, cumbersome, uncomfortable. But let's be clear about this. They were never optional. Never optional in battle. No soldier would have dared to enter the battle without his helmet for fear of being struck on the head by his enemy's sword, which would have meant certain death, by the way. Though Paul's exhortation to take the helmet of salvation is the shortest description given among the pieces of armor, those six short words need little explanation. That helmet was there to protect the soldier against the blows that could have come from his enemy's sword to his head. What about the Christian's helmet? What about the helmet that Paul tells us to put on here? What about the metaphor that Paul is using here when he says, Take the helmet of salvation. Well, as we studied the breastplate of righteousness several weeks back, I noted that one of Satan's often used, or often sought, rather, targets is the Christian's heart. He aims his flaming arrows, those flaming arrows of guilt and condemnation and shame. He aims them right at our hearts. And if we aren't protected by a clear understanding of the imputed righteousness of Christ to our otherwise bankrupt accounts, then we will be very susceptible to those flaming darts of guilt, condemnation, and shame. And as such, we'll be much less effective on the battlefield of the Christian life. But our hearts aren't the only attractive target to our adversary. So are our minds. That's the reason that Paul uses the Roman soldier's helmet as a metaphor here. It's a battle metaphor for the Christian because the head is the seat of the mind. Your your head, your mind, your brain, what's contained in here is what commands the whole body. Most of the battles in the Christian life are either won or lost on the battlefield of your mind. Most Most of the battles in the Christian life, they're either won or lost on the battlefield of your mind. I think you're probably all familiar with this statement now. You can probably finish it. You do what you do because you think what you think. That's right. We do what we do because we think what we think. I mean, the very word repentance, the Greek word metanoia, it means to think differently, to reconsider, or to to have a change of mind. There's an incredible emphasis in Scripture uh, given to what takes place between your ears. What goes on in your mind? What goes on in my mind? 
I mean, Jesus said it this way. He said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and with all your mind. Paul said, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. In Colossians 3, 2, he said, set your minds on things above, not on things of earth. In, in 2 Corinthians 10, uh, 5, he says, we destroy every lofty thought and opinion that raises itself up against Christ. And we take every thought captive, a literally, literal translation, we arrest every thought. We incarcerate every thought and make it obedient to Christ. There's an incredible emphasis throughout Scripture, particularly the New Testament, on what takes place between our ears. Your mind. Your mind. Peter tells us, prepare your minds for action. Be sober-minded. Set your hope. Hope, that's an important word. Let me put a pen in that. We'll just tack it to the wall. Hope. Set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Friends, we must remember that our adversary is no fool. He knows that a Christian's mind is a valuable target. Okay? And so you ask yourself the question, well, what does the helmet then have to do with salvation? What does the helmet have to do with salvation? Well, I would submit to you that the point that Paul's trying to drive home in our text for this morning is that the helmet is an indispensable piece of armor because our adversary, the devil, is seeking to destroy the believer's assurance of salvation with the fiery darts of doubt and discouragement. If the darts that are being aimed at your heart are those of guilt and and shame, and condemnation, the fiery darts that are being aimed at your mind are doubt, discouragement, and despair. Doubt, discouragement, and despair. Our adversary is bright, and he knows exactly where to shoot those flaming darts. And so Paul says, you need to protect your head. You need a helmet on. You need something to protect the mind, to protect your thinking, to protect what goes on between your ears. What is the confidence that the helmet of salvation brings? I submit to you that it brings the assurance that whatever comes to pass in this life, we stand secure in the grip of Christ. I think that's the whole overarching emphasis and point that Paul is trying to make here in the text. That whatever comes to pass in the Christian life, If we have the helmet of salvation on, we understand the very salvation that has been secured and procured for us by the person and work of Jesus Christ on Calvary's cross when he bled and died and rose victorious on the third day and is now seated at the right hand of the Father in heaven, mediating and advocating for us. We must have that truth squarely sitting on our minds. Otherwise, you and I will be very susceptible doubt and to discouragement and to despair as you move through this sin-riddled Genesis 3 fallen world. We'll fall to discouragement at times through the Christian life. That's, That's undoubted. But if we're equipped with the helmet of salvation, it is hard to stay discouraged. Okay, we will struggle with discouragement. But if we have the helmet of salvation on, it's hard to stay discouraged because of the very message that the helmet of salvation preaches to us. 
speaking about despair, speaking about discouragement. In Psalm 43, verse 5, David speaks to himself. You ever speak to yourself? It's okay. I wouldn't do it in public. But we're in good company if we do. David speaks to himself in Psalm 43, 5. This is what he says. He says, why are you in despair, O my soul? And why are you disturbed within me? Here's a key word again. Hope in God. Hope in God. For I shall again praise Him, the help of my countenance. You see, discouragement and doubt, they're deflected when you know that you are secure in Christ. Discouragement and doubt. Feeling disparaged. They're all deflected when you know that you are secure in Christ. As your hope is, so your comfort and joy will be. So we, don't, we, don't, we don't attach our joy to temporal things. We don't attach our joy to circumstances. If that's the case, there will be an emotional roller coaster, right? High highs and low lows and high highs and high lows. No, we attach our hope to that which is constant. Jesus Christ. As your hope is, if it's anchored in Christ, so will your comfort and joy be. Another way of saying that is this. That the knowledge of sins forgiven is a mighty fortress against the attacks of discouragement, doubt, and despair. The knowledge, the understanding, the belief, the settled, firm grasp on the reality of sins forgiven. He's forgiven me. Not because of me, but because of what Christ has done for me. When that thought has arrested our hearts and minds, it is a wonderful, mighty fortress against the attacks of our adversary. When a man or a woman receives the helmet of salvation, he or she can hold their head up with confidence and can face the most potent foe. I think about the, the, the words of the, the loved hymn before the throne of God. When Satan tempts me to despair and he tells me of the guilt within, upward I look, there's my hope, right? Upward I look and see him there who made an end of all my sin. Why is assurance of salvation, we, we might say, eternal security? Why, why is that such an important doctrine? I would submit to you that it is one of the sweetest doctrines to those who hold it dear. There, there, are, there is a cross-section of our brothers and sisters within the church who struggle with the idea of Assurance of salvation or eternal security. And, and oftentimes the, the argument that's made against it is, is, is if you tell a person that they are saved no matter what they do, then you are just setting them up for licentiousness. You're setting them up to go run amok. But I don't think that's true. I don't think that's true. Because grace changes a heart. Grace changes a mind. Remember repentance? It's a change of mind. It's thinking a different way. And so I think when you free a person and tell them that their, that their salvation is not dependent upon what they do, but yet dependent upon what Christ has already done, instead of freeing them to go live licentiously, it causes them to want to live for Him who died for them, 2 Corinthians 5. Now I want to please Him. I want to serve him. I want to honor him. I want to extol him. I want to magnify him. I want to make much of him because of what he's done for me. I think the doctrine of the assurance of salvation or eternal security is of massive importance for many reasons. And I'd love to preach on it at some point later down the road. 
But what place does assurance and security of salvation have in the text in front of us? Again, I think the point that Paul is trying to drive home here, I think the, Paul, the, the point that Paul is trying to make here is that if we're unsettled about whether we're really saved or not, whether we're truly saved or not, we're going to be much less effective on the battlefield of the Christian life. Because we're always going to be wondering, am I really saved? Am I not saved? Does he love me? Does he love me not? Am I in Christ or am I not in Christ? You see, that vacillating, it will make us a whole lot less effective in the Christian life than if we have the settled security of knowing that he has saved me and I am secure because of his righteousness imputed to my otherwise bankrupt account. Friends, I would submit to you this. Your salvation is as secure as Jesus Christ is righteous. Tumble that around in your mind for a minute. I would submit to you that your salvation is as secure, if you truly know Christ savingly, your salvation is as secure as Jesus Christ is righteous. Now ask yourself the question, how righteous is Jesus Christ? There's the answer to how secure is my salvation. You see, if a soldier believes himself destined to be victorious... Think about a soldier in battle now. A soldier believes himself destined to be victorious, and he'll strain every nerve to make himself so. The flush of victory in his heart will give him power and fortitude in battle. But on the other hand, if a soldier goes into battle and is fearful that he may not come out the other side victorious, then he'll be riddled with fear, riddled with doubt, and riddled with apprehension. You might think in terms of a football player with his helmet on. He has no concern to rush headlong into his opponents. He knows that his head is secure. But if you take that lineman and you remove his helmet from him, he will play a whole lot differently. He'll be reserved, lacking power, concerned for his safety. The Golden Gate Bridge, probably one of the United States' most iconic pieces of architecture. An absolute modern marvel. Construction began on that bridge in November of 1933. It was commenced just uh, almost five years later in 1937. And for years, actually until 1964, it stood as the longest suspension bridge span in the world. Though the bridge was actually completed ahead of time, work progressed slowly for quite a while. This wasn't for a lack of workers or even a lack of money, but it was because the men who were working on the bridge were so fearful of falling into the icy waters of the San Francisco Bay. Rightfully so. Unfortunately, 11 men did fall to their death during the construction of the bridge. And with rising fear came what? Slower work. This is when Chief Engineer Joseph Strauss came up with the brilliant idea to lay a safety net below the bridge to catch a worker if he fell. This made all the difference in the workers' productivity. Let me ask you the question, why? Why would the net make such a difference in the workers' productivity? Well, I think it was because of the assurance or the security that if they fell, they'd be caught. That if they fell, they'd be caught. You see, the reality of security freed the men up to work diligently on the task at hand. Assurance of salvation. Oh, what a sweet 
sweet doctrine that is. Does it free us to sin? Absolutely not. Paul in Romans chapter 6 said, should we, should we go on sinning that grace should increase or grace should abound? By no means. Let it never be so. Then just two chapters later in Romans chapter 8, probably one of my favorite verses in the entirety of Scripture, Paul says, who Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? And then he goes on in verses 38 and 39 and he says, For I am convinced that neither height nor depth nor angels nor principality nor things present nor things to come nor powers. Nothing, nothing will be able to separate us from the love of Christ which is in, or the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. It's a wonderful passage on security. Matter of fact, the, the text actually says, the, the original language here is, the helmet which is salvation. Paul says, take up, put on the helmet which is salvation. A salvation, it's that Greek word soterion. It means defender or defense. Uh, friends, isn't Jesus our defender and our defense? He is our salvation. He's our sure defense before the Father, and He is our unrelenting defender before our adversary. But the question I have to ask you is this. What tense, or what aspect, or what facet of our salvation is Paul referring to here in Ephesians 6, 17a? And you may be thinking to yourself, I don't even know what the question is you're asking. What tense, or in what sense, or what facet of our salvation is Paul referring to when he says, put on the helmet, which is salvation? Here's what I mean when I say facet, or tense, or sense. There is a past aspect of your salvation, there is a present aspect of your salvation, and there is yet a future aspect of your salvation. Let me me help you see it. You got your walking fingers ready? Turn back to chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1. I want you to see this past or this completed aspect of your salvation. We call this justification. Okay? That's the past aspect of your salvation, the fact that you were justified. We see this past tenseness. Look at verse 4. Ephesians 1, 4. He chose us in him. That's past before the foundation of the world. Let your finger drop down to verse 5. He predestined us for adoption. That's past tense. It's already been completed. Let your finger drop down to verse 7. In him we have redemption through his blood. Let your finger drop down to verse 9. He has made known to us the mystery of his will. It's past tense. Verse 11, in him we have obtained an inheritance. Verse 13, we have been sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. Turn over to chapter 2. It continues. Look at verse 5. Paul says, he made us alive in Christ. That's past. It's still absolutely true. Though these truths are past tense, they are are absolutely true. They've not passed away. They're just already completed. 
Look at verse 2-6, chapter 2-6. He raised us up and seated us in the heavenly places. And then you have the comprehensive summary in Ephesians 2-8. By grace you have been saved. Okay, that's our, that's our past tense salvation. We might call that justification. But there's a present tense to our salvation as well. We call that sanctification. That's everything between conversion and the time that we draw life's final breath. Okay? We might call that the Christian life. Everything that takes place between John 5, 24. Anybody know what John 5, 24 says? Assignment. Go home this week and memorize John 5, 24. It's a great evangelism verse. Jesus says, truly, truly. When Jesus says, truly, truly, what do your ears need to do? They need to perk up. That's exactly right. Here's what Jesus means when he says truly, truly. He means really, really. Don't miss this. Don't miss this. Get this. Get this. Be alert. Be alert. Listen. Listen. Okay? When Jesus says listen, listen, we would do well to listen, listen, right? Jesus says truly, truly, I tell you, everyone who believes in him who sent me does not come into condemnation but he has crossed over from death to life. Everyone who believes these words of mine and believes in him who sent me, he does not come into condemnation, but he's crossed over from death to life. Everything that takes place from your crossing over from death to life, that's your justification. It's the past tense. Everything that takes place between then and the time that either Jesus returns or you breathe life's final breath, that's sanctification. That's the growing process of the Christian life. That's the present tenseness of your salvation. Go back to chapter 1. Let me show it to you in just a handful of places. Ephesians chapter 1. Look at verse 17 to begin with, and we'll move forward from there. We are to be growing, Paul says, in wisdom and knowledge of God. It's a process. That's where we are now. Look at verse 18. We're to be growing in an understanding of the hope to which he called us and the riches to which he secured for us. That's, we're to be doing that right now in the Christian life. But look at verse 19. We're to be growing in our understanding of his, of his immeasurably great power toward us. That's now. Uh, flip over to chapter 2 and look at verse 10. Chapter 2, verse 10. We're to be growing in the good works that God prepared for us to walk in beforehand. That's right now. That's present in the Christian life. That's part of the sanctification process. Look at chapter 3, verse 16. Paul says, we're being strengthened with power through his spirit in our inner being. That's taking place now. Look at verse 17. We're being rooted and grounded in love. Verses 18 and 19, we're growing in our understanding of the immense love that Christ has for us and the fact that it surpasses all knowledge. On into chapter 4, verses 2 and 3, we're to be growing in humility, gentleness, and patience, bearing with one another. That's, 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 chapter 4 is where we started dealing with our relationships within the body of Christ. See, all those are a work in progress. God has begun the work, right? Philippians 1, 6, being confident in this, that he who began a good work in you will complete it. And everything in the middle is the present tenseness of your salvation. That's where we are today. If you're here and you know Christ savingly. But there is yet a future tense or a future aspect of our salvation as well. You see, salvation means that God has, 
that's in the past, rescued you from the penalty of sin through faith in His Son, Jesus Christ. He is presently rescuing you from the power of sin through the resurrection power of Christ that is in you. And every believer longs for the day when He will, that is future, once and for all, rescue us from every remaining particle. That is the presence of sin when Christ returns in power and in glory. And so the question I have for you is, which salvation is Paul talking about here when he says, put on the helmet of salvation? Let me submit to you that Paul's talking about number three. I think Paul's talking about the future aspect, the hope, the culmination, the sealing everything up, the wrapping everything up in Christ. God's begun a good work in us, and he will complete it. When will he complete it? At the day of Christ Jesus. I think that's that's the hope of future salvation. We might call it glorification. If our past tense salvation is justification, our present tense salvation is sanctification, then what what we're hoping for at the return of Christ is our glorification. When God makes all things new, when he rids the universe of sin, we get resurrected bodies. When we see him, we shall be like him. That's, that's what we hope for. That's what Paul was talking about when he said, all creation groans. And not creation only, but we as well. We groan that God would make all things new. I think that's what Paul is talking about here when he says, put on the helmet of salvation. Let me make one thing clear, if it's not already. I am not in any way, shape, or form preaching a weird soteriology that would divide up salvation. We're not talking about three separate salvations here, okay? We have one salvation that has to it three facets, so to speak. One salvation in Christ, three facets. I think Paul is talking about our future glorification here, that that hope of a future victory, final victory, Right? We hope for the final victory when Jesus Christ sums all things up under him, the head, receiving the inheritance of our salvation. Remember, even back to Ephesians 1, 13, we've been sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, which is a deposit guaranteeing your inheritance, which is what? Two words. To come. To come guaranteeing our inheritance, which is to come. That's what we hope for. That's what we long for. And I think we see this clearly in a parallel passage. Let me have you keep your finger here in Ephesians chapter 6, if you've made your way back there already. Let me have you turn to the right. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 8 and 9. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, Verses 8 and 9. This is what Paul says. And here's why I think that Paul is speaking to the future aspect of our salvation, our future hope. Beginning in verse 8, Paul says, But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. And for a helmet, the hope of salvation. 
That's what Paul is getting at here in our text. Let me say a few things about the meaning of hope here for a moment. When Paul says here in 1 Thessalonians 5.8, we're to put on the hope of salvation, he isn't using the word hope like we use the word today. We, we use the word hope like I hope the weather's going to be better tomorrow. I hope my mom and my dad get me this for my birthday. You see, today hope carries the idea of, of desire without certainty. But that's not what hope meant in Paul's day. That's not the way Paul used the word hope when he wrote it in his letters. Paul isn't saying here, we, we hope we attain salvation in the end. We, we hope that God makes good on all his promises. We, we hope the inheritance is really going to be there. So not what Paul's saying here. You see, hope in Scripture speaks of an absolute assurance that God will do good to me in the future. And we might define biblical hope in this way. Biblical hope is the grace whereby Jesus Christ, or through Jesus Christ rather, we expect and wait for all those good things which he has promised to us that we have not yet received. Let me repeat that for you. Biblical hope is the grace whereby through Christ we expect and we wait for all those good things that God has promised to us yet that we have not yet received received. That's why we sing the the words, my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. When he shall come with trumpet sound, oh, then may I in him be found, dressed in his righteousness alone, faultless to stand before the throne. You see, that's our future hope, to stand before his throne faultless, dressed in his perfect righteousness, And a certainty, a sure confidence in that hope today changes everything about how you engage in the battle. Are the dots connected? Uh Uh-huh, uh-uh. Okay. A sure expectation that God is going to make good on all His promises, that He is going to see me through until the end, that He is going to keep me, and that I will stand one day at last when either He returns or calls me home before His throne without spot or wrinkle or any such defect. That hope, friends, changes everything about how I fight in the battle today. And I think that is why Paul says... Put the helmet of salvation on your head securely. Hoping in the yes and amen of all of God's promises. Let me try to bring a little bit of practical application here. I've titled this little section in my notes, which are available to any of you this week on the website. The helmet and the howling wind and waves. It's a little subtitle I've put here in my notes. The helmet and the howling wind and waves. You see, trials and temptations, they will reveal whether or not you are wearing the hope of the helmet of salvation. Friends, how do you respond when the wind howls and the waves come crashing in? When the clouds of trials and difficulties and hardships and temptations fill your view, how do you respond? 
You see, there are some days that are smooth sailing for sure. But there are other days where the bow and the stern of the ship are certainly rocking. How do you respond when the wind and the waves kick up? In 1871, Horatio Spafford, a well-known lawyer, an elder in his church, along with his wife, Anna, and their four young daughters, they were devastated in the Chicago fire that broke out, leveled the city, consumed almost everything that they owned. But that wouldn't be the biggest trial in Horatio's life. That would come two years later, when he was supposed to be on a family vacation. Horatio and his family had planned a family vacation to Europe, but at the last minute, he was unable to go due to business. And so his wife and his four precious young daughters boarded a French steamship bound for Europe without him. In the early morning hours of November 22nd, 1873, that ocean liner carrying Anna and their four daughters collided with a Scottish vessel in the English Channel, and it sank in 12 minutes. Anna was picked up unconscious, floating on a piece of wreckage, but their four young children had all drowned. Horatio received word from his wife via telegraph, read this, saved alone. He immediately got on a ship to go be with his grieving wife, and as he passed over the place along the channel where the boat and his four precious daughters' bodies lie at the bottom of the ocean, he penned these words, when peace like a river. Attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll. Whatever my lot, thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. Now let me ask you a question, friends. How in the world is that well? How is it well? When you suffer the loss of your possessions in a fire, and then your daughters are tragically drowned at sea. Well, he goes on to tell us how it's well, and here is the future hope that he pins in the hymn. He says, though Satan should buffet, though trials should come, let this blessed assurance, is the word, control, that Christ has regarded my helpless estate and has shed his own blood for my soul. And everything is safe and secure in him. That's how it's well. And that's how it's well when the doctor walks into your or my room one day and uses the word terminal. That's how it's well. Because we know that all his promises are yes and amen in Christ. And no matter what may come to pass in this life, he will see me safely to the end. That's my hope. That's my hope. I hope it's your hope. Do we struggle with that being our hope? Absolutely. But I hope we're growing in that being our rock-solid anchor in life. When your mind is controlled by the gospel that Jesus Christ has shed his own blood for your soul, it's then that we begin to understand what Paul meant when he said this, through honor and dishonor, through slander and praise, dying and behold we live, sorrowful yet always rejoicing, having nothing yet possessing everything. You see, we can begin to understand those words. We understand the hope of our future salvation. What does the helmet of salvation tell you when you're facing weariness and discouragement? What does the helmet of salvation tell you when you're facing weariness and discouragement? It tells you this. 
do not lose heart. Though your outer self is wasting away, your inner self is being renewed day by day, for this light and momentary affliction is preparing for you. Here's future, an eternal weight of glory. It far surpasses it all. So we look not to things that are seen, but to things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient and temporal, but the things that are unseen are eternal. That's what the helmet of salvation tells you, brother or sister, when you are struggling with weariness and discouragement. Tells you, look up. Don't look in. What does the helmet of salvation tell you when you're facing loneliness? Well, the helmet of salvation tells you, I'll never leave you nor forsake you. I'm nearer than you ever dared imagine. What does the helmet of salvation tell you when you're suffering? Well, it tells you this. It tells you the sufferings of this present time, that's the sanctification period, that's the life I'm living, this present time are not worth comparing, here's the future hope, to the glory that is to be revealed to us. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now, and not only the creation, but we also ourselves. For in this hope we are saved. Now hope is that which is not seen. For who hopes in what he sees? But we hope for what we do not see. And we wait for it with patience. Patience. What does the helmet of salvation tell you when you're discouraged? Well, it tells you this. Set your mind on things above, not on things of earth. For you died. And your life is hidden with Christ and God. And when Christ, who is your life, appears, it's future, then you will also appear with him in glory. What does the helmet of salvation tell you when you're facing trials? What tells you this? In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials. So the tested genuineness of your faith more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor. Here's future at the revelation of Jesus Christ. For this light and momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory. But what does the helmet of salvation tell you when you're facing fear? Well, the helmet of salvation tells you this. Peace I leave you. My peace I give you, not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. What does the helmet of salvation tell you when you're facing death? Well, the helmet of salvation tells you it is not death to die. Paul said to live as Christ and to die is gain. To die is just to have everything you hoped for in all of its fullness. We all face difficulties in this Genesis 3 fallen world. Paul wrote, we're afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but never destroyed. You see, these, these setbacks, discouragement, trials, fear, death, wearisome, discouragement, loneliness, suffering, they're all bumps in the road. And amidst all the smoke of battle in this life, we have no doubt that we're victors. 
We're victors already. It's who we are. In a world where nothing is permanent, the hope of salvation made possible by the sacrifice of Jesus Christ never fades away. It's permanent. It represents the stability that this world does not have. It represents hope in the most difficult circumstances and enables us to fight against discouragement and despair. Those flaming darts that the evil one would love to send sailing at your mind. Will there be times in the Christian life when we're perplexed, uncertain of what's happening? Without a doubt. But in those moments, we must remember that our commander-in-chief is never perplexed for a second, and he will not let us go. He won't let us go. He will hold us fast. He'll hold you fast. Friends, the helmet of salvation, it will make you active in all the duties of the Christian life. It'll make you courageous in all the conflicts of the Christian life. It'll make you cheerful in all conditions. Consider a bustling airport terminal for just a moment. Many of us have probably been there before. Have you ever noticed the difference between a ticketed passenger and a passenger flying on standby? A ticketed ticketed passenger is usually without concern. He sits there in the terminal. He reads his newspaper or a book. He even enjoys a cup of coffee. He entertains a conversation. He might even catch a quick nap. But the passenger who's flying on standby doesn't share the same lack of concern that ticketed passenger enjoys. Instead, he's anxious, he's unsettled, he's listening to every announcement that's made over the PA. His eyes are arduously scanning the monitors and he paces back and forth. You see, there's nothing peaceful about the wait. Here's the point, friends. When we receive Jesus Christ as the substitute who bore our sin, You also receive the ministry of the Spirit that confirms that you indeed are a ticketed passenger. Then you don't live anxious, unsettled, fearful, gloomy, discouraged, in despair. Will there be moments? There will. But with the helmet of salvation on, we don't live there. We don't live there. Because we're looking upward and outward to the future hope that we have, that all things we made yes and amen in Christ. Let me say in just our final closing minutes here, just a few words about false assurance and false hope. We make a warning here and just four simple thoughts about false hope and false assurance. There are many who fill themselves with various false hopes, with various false assurances on their onward march to eternity. Let me encourage you to beware of the false assurance of future repentance. Beware, my friends. Beware, young ones, of the false assurance of future repentance of being able to repent later, enjoying life and settling everything later. This is an oftentimes sought, but a very unsafe refuge. James tells us, come now, you who say today or tomorrow, we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit, for you don't know what tomorrow will bring. 
Our life is but a mist or a vapor that appears for just a little while and then quickly vanishes. Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians that today is the day of salvation. Repent and believe. You're more sinful than you ever dared imagine, but God is more gracious than you could ever imagine. Beware of the false assurance of future repentance. Beware of the false assurance of the general mercy and grace of God that it will save you. Just God's generally merciful and gracious. I'm sure when all things are said and done, he's going to save me. He's going to take care of things. I, I don't, I've made a lot of knots in life, but I'm sure he's going to figure out how to untie it all. A.W. Tozer once said, the vague and tenuous hope that God is too kind to punish the ungodly has become a deadly opiate for the consciences of millions. What a statement. Paul exhorted us. He said, don't presume on God's riches and his kindness Don't presume on his patience. They're meant to lead you to repentance, not for you to take advantage of. Beware of the false assurance that the general mercy and grace of God will save you. You must repent and come to Christ. There is no other way. Beware of the false assurance of being saved because of your connection to the visible church. Beware of the false assurance of being saved just because of your connection with a visible church. Jesus said this in Matthew chapter 7. He said, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name cast out many demons and perform many miracles? Jesus said, and then I will tell them plainly, away from me, you evildoers. I never knew you. Beware of the false assurance of being saved just because of your connection to the visible church, just because of your connection with spiritual things or this ministry or that ministry or serving here or serving there. Assurance only comes through being rightly connected, rightly united to the Lord Jesus Christ. Do you know him? Do you know him savingly? Do you have that hope of a future salvation, that all things will be made yes and amen in Jesus Christ? If so, then you have the rock-solid assurance that he will hold you fast and keep you to that day.